Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and innovation in both consumer technology and consumer products. If you're enjoying this content, you could subscribe to my newsletter, theconsumervc.substack.com, to get each new episode and more consumer news delivered straight to your inbox. Our guest today is Ariana Thacker, founder of Conscience VC. Conscience invests in early stage and science-led consumer startups. We're going to discuss why science-led consumer startups is contrarian in itself, what are real, tangible, defensible moats, and her approach to fundraising and organizing her first fund. Without further ado, here's Ariana. Ariana, thank you so much for joining me. How are you? (laughs) I'm doing well. How about you? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. Thanks. So why did you want to break into VC? That wasn't a super obvious question before the last like five years. So before even even touching venture, I was an engineer, worked in a variety of different roles, started dabbling in startups and then realized I love working with founders so much way more than building tech. And I saw VC as the most scalable way to do that. So that got me attracted to VC, um, started off mainly doing deep tech investing, and now in the present day, building Conscience, the, the fun I run. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about Conscience and why did you go the route with VC to eventually start your own fund? Yeah, so it was first dabbling in these startups that I realized, wow, like founders are are driving extraordinary impact. They're creating the jobs, they're driving the economy, they're solving these incredibly hard problems. And I just really love that conceptually. I don't know if I would necessarily run a venture-backed startup, so I wanted to play this sort of supporting role. And I saw VC as this kind of mesh of a different types of jobs, like from being this headhunter, right? You're essentially headhunting these CEOs to, to run companies in, in a way um, via voting through your check. I saw it as this kind of service role as well. You're, you're really opening up your network. You're finding ways to be helpful to support the companies, especially at the earliest stages. So I just saw VC including all these different elements that I love and, and just deeply resonated with. I tried initially before breaking into venture, running my own consulting firm and working with a variety of different startups in that type of capacity. And I quickly realized there's a cap to what I can contribute in terms of my time and services, doing more consulting roles. I I found myself limited to at most three projects or four projects at a time. And at that point, I'm just completely tapped out from a mental standpoint, but also time standpoint. So I saw venture as just a way more scalable model of being able to serve founders. And that just deeply resonated with me. And, and I really love it. I'm, I'm having a lot of fun doing what I'm doing. That's awesome. That's really cool. And your background is in, as you mentioned, like deep tech, and you're uh, very much deep in deep tech. If you can tell us a bit more, we haven't done too many podcast episodes where deep tech has kind of come up. So I'd love to kind of kind of understand a bit more about how you think about deep tech in terms of with, with that kind of consumer lens. I'm flexing the term deep tech a little bit in the firm. So I'll explain how, how I'm defining it a bit more. And I guess first I'll start with what, what does conscience even do in the first place? There's not a lot of information on us online. We're intentionally quite stealth. So we're investing at the intersection of consumer and science. And I have an asterisk on both consumer and an asterisk on science. So 
by consumer, I mean driving some sort of value for an individual, the end user, and that can be a patient. That can just be any sort of end user. So that would eliminate automations within the enterprise field. That would eliminate a lot of um, software related to design, anything that more so benefits the enterprise versus the individual. And then for the science piece, I'm looking for businesses that have some sort of technical defensibility. A quick litmus test for that is hey, look, if it takes a really smart group of engineers, scientists, researchers, essentially fill in the blank for a type of role to hack what you're doing in less than 12 months, it's not enough technical defensibility for us. So it doesn't necessarily have to be, quote unquote, deep tech as as the industry defines it today. And it doesn't necessarily have to be a scientific breakthrough, but we are looking for technically defensible companies. When I think of technically defensible companies, I think of like heavy R&D costs and just a lot of obviously money towards building. And I think what's really interesting about, if that's fair to say, and I think what's interesting about Conscience is since you're, it seems like you're investing in pretty early stages, right? Where maybe the product isn't built out yet, I'd imagine, or kind of how far along does the product need to be? It seems like Building something that's very defensible not only takes time, but it also takes you know a lot of money. So how are you thinking about where how far along a founder needs to be, and also at the same time, how much founders are are typically trying to raise? The way I think about this is less so the input time and cost to reach the stage that a founder's reach, but more so the timeline to get to a commercialized product or a major inflection point within the business. So sometimes the businesses or the founders come to me and, and they've already building companies on top of over 10 years of R&D, but they're 12 months or 18 months away from a commercialized product. So that's more so in, in my wheelhouse. I would say almost all of the investments, um, but a small handful are, are pre-product, pre-revenue, but I wouldn't say they're proven fundamentals and they're not pre-proven traction. So typically they show up with some sort of pre-orders, LOIs, some amassed wait list demonstrating market traction. And then in terms of the product, they've proved out the fundamentals or some sort of prototype or, or MVP. So that's typically the stage they, they come to me. I do a lot more underwriting around, you know, when's, when's the next major inflection point in the business? And it is all pre-seed or early seed stage in investing. Got it. So most of the R&D maybe or the actual technical part, that's somewhat proven out in order for you to get involved. It's maybe 12, as you said, like 12, 12 to 18 months before they're able to actually commercialize the actual product itself. But it seems like it's pretty far along in terms of the actual R&D side of things. Yeah, and it depends a lot, a lot more on the product. Um, like for example, for hardware or any any sort of like physical product like that, we we tend to look for a lot more market validation, even though they they don't have as much developed on the product front. That's okay for us. For let's say more of a, a therapeutics company, we do look for quite a bit of data before we feel comfortable investing there. But I would say as a firm generally, we lean towards taking more technical risk versus market risk, um, which is a bit outside the norm in venture. What was the fundraising? process like considering not deep tech mixing the conversion especially of you know consumer and science it's quite differentiated i would think in terms of what's out there what was the fundraising process like in order to convince potential lps to invest in conscience i would say it was really hard until it wasn't i think it did take some initial convincing to get to that first close i don't know i thought it was funny i guess other people thought it was funny it's either going to make you laugh or cry or um just say what why um i wrote this article called raising a first fund during a pandemic 101 on linkedin and it it just takes you through the 25 tactical steps of of fundraising (laughs) basically a solo gp without a network on your own while simultaneously running everything that goes into a venture firm that's a fun read if, if you're just curious or if you're also going through that journey but I realized early on that the first kind of 
inflection point I would need to reach to have social credibility with LPs was to get to that first close. So I optimized for getting the best possible names and getting to a first close ASAP. So in that first close, I had folks like Foundation Capital, Carta, Toba Capital, Cannonball Capital, they all came in. And after establishing that social proof, things got a little easier, but the whole process took a lot longer than you would think. Like from forming the entities till the final close, it took nearly 18 months. And that's a grind. And it's not like a slow paced marathon. It's It felt like a sprint the entire time. So to be raising for that long and that intensely took just enormous levels of energy while running everything else that goes into running a firm, like selecting your service providers and sourcing companies and building process and um, looking for talents, running due diligence, portfolio value add, et cetera, et cetera. Like these aspects of the business didn't stop. So it was just hundreds of, of rejections through this process. And it took that, as as I mentioned, with the 18 months to get to that final close. So I would say it was hard, probably the hardest thing I've ever done and also pulled off. So quite challenging, but we did successfully hit our final close at the cap of, of $10 million with some fantastic LP. So very excited about that. That's amazing. That's amazing. And then you just mentioned how you raised this fund initially when you did not have a VC network, right? Right. I would say limited LP network, actually almost no LP network. I started off pitching like 5K, 10K, even 25K check writers, and then that kind of snowballed from there. I did know a very small subset of VCs, but they're not, you know, there was more like analysts or associates at other firms from the prior firm I worked at. It wasn't anyone that was really going to push anything forward for me in terms of the fundraising process. Yeah, I just would love to kind of hear just from for anyone that's listening that's thinking of starting a fund or you know just wants to start their own fund, how were you able to build relationships when you maybe didn't come from, since you did have maybe limited LP exposure? I think it comes down to being high trust with these LPs. I'm still doing extensive investor updates. My last Q1 update was literally 28 pages long. So really sharing a lot about what I'm doing with incredible radical transparency and also just being very persistent. There were folks that originally rejected or ghosted me and they circled back um, months later, actually quite interested in investing. Also, um, a lot of the LPs ended up doing a lot of reference checks. um, So those were positive. Also, I, I did a lot of content and a lot of just brand building, specifically on LinkedIn. I don't have a Twitter, um, so it was all on LinkedIn. So Growth Hacked, I mentioned this in, in a few places, to have around 385,000 followers on there, um, which at some, I think it's more than Andreessen, um, now less than Sequoia on there. So that stood out to LPs and folks were just curious how and why that happened. So I called that kind of like peacocking, like a dating term just to get initial intros, which is the hardest part. A lot of it was optimizing for who your target quote unquote customer is, right? In terms of your LP and for my fund size, even though we did end up getting some institutional players, they're not they're not the main customer type for us. It would be more so individual. So um, ended up getting more so like unicorn founders, families, partners at notable funds, just other folks like that, like focusing a lot on the individuals to fill out the full ton. And once you get a handful of LPs in, these LPs then open up their networks to other folks that can also come in. So it's a snowball effect and you just have to show this persistence and you have to keep going and and also keep in mind this is a long haul. Like this is going to take likely 12 to 18 months to to close your fund. Mostly I see closer to the 18 month mark for fund ones. Walk us through a little bit about your due diligence process when you actually meet with founders. Uh, Are there specific categories that you are uh, knee deep on? Yeah, I would say um, I'm more of this like 
technical generalist. I have um, seven domain experts that I lean heavily on to do um, more of the technical due diligence. And I try to get um, external folks involved as well, just to cover my gap. So the seven experts span like biotech, just generally like therapeutics and bio regulated industries, hardware, just general healthcare, sustainability, AI. So I have folks to kind of go deeper on, on those seven categories. More broadly, if, if I were to just bucket the thesis into three separate buckets, it'd be consumer and bio, consumer and physical products, so and consumer and digital. So bio could cover synbio, therapeutics, longevity, et cetera. Physical products could cover like hardware, mobility, CPG, new types of food. And the third digital, largely AI. So I try to find technical advisors to cover all those different categories. And there's no way I can be an expert in, in everything. It's just more so, can I attract the talent to help me do a lot of the heavy technical due diligence? So how then do you think about structuring your firm? Because I know it's single GP, it's your first fund. How do you think overall about the actual firm structure and maybe all the different kind of points for, for conscience? In terms of who's internal, external to the team, so it's a solo GP structure. I brought on a, a full-time investor. We brought on all, as well nine Gen Z apprentices. Uh, there's also a part-time operations lead. I've onboarded around 70 scouts and three Berkeley Venture Capital Fellows, five Cornell Venture Capital Fellows, the seven domain experts that are mentioned, and 50 plus other VC firms that I partner with on a quarterly basis. So I, I sync with them. We actively share deal flow. And those, those partner firms, Firms are either in this consumer or deep tech kind of bucket, right? I'm, I'm not meeting a lot of folks doing both. So I want to just span both possible categories. So I'm actively sharing deal flow. We're going to start formalizing that a lot more. And then in terms of, of the digital side, so that covers the people piece for the digital side, we've automated as much as possible. We have hundreds of, of locations that we're scraping data and getting updates from. We've automated just a lot in terms of how we think through our process. We have now a temp, almost a templatized initial screening process. We definitely have a templatized pre-screening process and um, just general process in the firm. And now um, we're starting to templatize how we conduct our, our reference checks too. So we're in this process now of just like converting things into being more templatized as, as we scale, especially as I bring on more people on the team. And as I'm approaching a fund too, I want to be able to bring on more folks pretty seamlessly and not have a hit or have inconsistencies in, in terms of how we're working with founders and in our process. Got it. That's helpful. And I love this, you know, how you have Gen Z apprentices. Can you tell us a little bit about how that kind of works and how you um, initially had this idea? Yeah, so I wanted to get more tapped into Gen Z psychology trends, etc. And I also have this lean towards mentorship, towards community building. So I just saw this as kind of the best way to optimize for both of those outcomes. And we ended up interviewing hundreds of, of different possible apprentices for this program. The selection rate was less than 4% for the folks that ended up getting in. And they're incredible. They're the leaders. They have high intellectual horsepower. They're very creative, high integrity, high cultural fit for the firm. Um, so I feel really lucky to be working with all the apprentices. And the way it's structured is that we have weekly educational sessions with the apprentices covering sourcing, due diligence, founder value add, talking through 
through trends, talking through um, specific deals that we were reviewing. We have weekly deal flow meetings too that we loop the apprentices into. We have opportunities for um, cash bonuses. So if they um, do something pretty extraordinary um, or if we have like um, services that we want done in the firm, we'll set up a contract directly with that apprentice and, and pay them for that work outside of the educational piece that we're doing. And we're also inviting them to all of our founder calls as well. So they're seeing in real time how, how the due diligence process works. And then we, we have this Slack channel together where we're, we're having different discussions around it. So I, I think this is just this heavy education piece and it's described as an apprenticeship, not an internship for a reason. I really do want to go deep and continue to go deep with the apprentices, right? And have this very much long-term relationship versus this kind of like churn cycle um, internship experience and program. What are some of the challenges when investing in in deep tech or some of these very technical um, businesses? It takes a long time sometimes to underwrite the technology and you do have to often lean on these advisors and experts. So coordinating with their schedules and getting them on calls and understanding the technical nuance, like you, you have to constantly be learning and reading these white papers and reading through patents. I think it's just very challenging. It's not really a, a space where you can you can invest in in a first call. You do actually have to go deep and understand the technology. I think that piece makes it a lot more challenging. And also, um, I, I don't I don't know if there's really a lot of supportive folks in in the venture ecosystem for these deep tech companies. And I mean that in terms of um, there's just so much content and partnerships and service providers available for these more software driven companies. I think we're just now starting to see that kind of ecosystem getting built up for for the deep tech side, too. So I think that's that's another challenge. There isn't really a lot of entrepreneurial support, particularly at the early stages. How do you think about defensibility within moats? I think walking through what did it take to get to the point that they're at. Oftentimes, I, I like to think of it as in terms of five whys. So why is this the right problem to be solving in the first place versus this other problem that lives over here? Why this solution? Why is this the best solution to this problem? So kind of having this five whys type analysis to even understand why their solution makes sense and then going through and understanding what makes it defensible. And it, it doesn't necessarily have, the companies that we've invested in didn't necessarily have to hold patents at the time of investment, but understanding how long it took them to get to that point, but also the amount of technical know-how it took to get to that point, right? I guess on the extreme end, like there's if there's only a small handful of folks that can even do what you're doing by virtue of there only being like one to three labs in the entire world that focus on that particular domain, then that that would be quite defensible. But if what you're building is largely off the shelf technology that pretty much any entrepreneur could have access to with enough hustle, then that's that's a lot less defensible. So it's it's kind of this the spectrum of, of how we think through it. There isn't this like hard cutoff, like the 12 month rule that we have in the firm is, you know, kind of a little hand wavy, but it just it just symbolizes more. So this is the quick litmus test we we think through. If this is like more of a, a drag and drop or, or off the shelf type of um, product, it's it's less so for us. I particularly like that what you said about you know asking the question why is this the best solution for this problem because we talk about how on this show you know sometimes the entrepreneur's solution maybe you validate that that the problem there is actually very very real but you're maybe not convinced that that their solution is the best but you might make the bet on the entrepreneur because 
you believe that eventually they'll figure it out and be able to pivot to the right kind of answer or solution. I'd imagine deep tech, it might be, or investing in products that are heavily technical, it might be a little bit different since the R&D costs and the actual to build that, that defensibility, it's a lot. And so how do you think about this idea of pivoting when you look at companies and do you have to be maybe more rigid as an investor? It goes into the earlier example related to hardware even, right? Like those products are harder to rapidly iterate. So what we look for is extensive customer discovery and depth of understanding of the problem too. And as well as some other psychological aspects in in the founder, like their ability to really succeeded when all the factors were against them, this ability to just win. So we look for these other kind of psychological components too, but going into these types of businesses, there does need to be a lot more thoughtfulness around who the customer is and and their depth of understanding of the problem and just a lot more thoughtfulness around why this specific solution to the problem, because the R&D penalties, to your point, are are high. It's, It's harder to pivot a lot of these types of businesses. What's one thing that you would change about venture capital? You know, I, I think initially I would have said um, technical, taking more technical risk versus market risk, um, actually to the to the detriment maybe of my own firm. I, th- I think, uh, as mentioned um, throughout the podcast, there's this preference for investors to take on market risk in the form of new business models or tapping into new markets. But I think we are missing out on um, tremendous impact through these scientific breakthroughs. This is like a tagline on, on my LinkedIn where the future vitality of our economy, which is tied to driving value, will depend to a large extent on, on these scientific advances. So um, I see what I'm doing as this mechanism to directly commercialize a lot of these breakthroughs and innovations. So I really would want to see more technical risk being had in, in venture capital. And I think it would lead to improved outcomes for, for the world and for the individuals. How would you also think about maybe building your network or surrounding yourself with the right people that in order to be able to kind of play some of these bets? I'm always of the mindset that any any problem can be solved. So I, I think approaching that from a first principles approach, like first, where is there opportunity in the market? Where do you have strong conviction, but also interest that um, technical solutions can, can solve those problems. Um, the way I think through career and doing what you want in life is usually the overlap of three things. Like one, what does the market value? Two, what are your authentic interests? And three, what are your strengths? So um, just kind of brainstorming that and then filling in, in folks to hedge against where your your gaps are, right? You're not going to know it all. And, you know, I, there's a lot of these businesses where it's my first time seeing and, and hearing of these technical concepts so I, I do have to ramp up quickly. So if you have this like kind of super learner mentality and you this openness to just learn and constantly be learning, like I'm, I'm constantly watching YouTube videos and reading white papers and reading textbooks and just um, talking to experts, talking to scientists, talking to PhDs. Like if you have this impulse to just always be learning and especially around technical subjects, even if you don't come from a technical background, I think you can find ways to kind of hack it. But I think like having a, a technical degree does help in terms of the right mental models to, to think through in a technical way and also to build relationships and have resonance with, with these types of founders. I think any problem can be solved with enough creativity and, and effort. What's one book that's inspired you personally and one book that has inspired you professionally? I would say for the personal front, The Four Agreements. Um, so if you haven't read that book, there's there's four buckets there. Don't take things personally. Don't make assumptions. Always do your best and be impeccable with your word. So this has really been a, a North Star in, in how I operate personally and professionally. It's helped me a lot in terms of managing my own psychology, but also bringing my best self and, and 
leadership qualities to my work and how I show up in life. And then in terms of professionally, I would say Discipline Entrepreneurship, which is one of the most understated books for entrepreneurs. Um, I've actually bought this book for several founder friends, and it breaks down building a company into these 24 really actionable steps in, in such clear language, direct language. I, I really love it. Um, and that was written by Bill Allett. So I would strongly recommend both of those books. My final question to you is what's one piece of advice that you've received that has stuck with you? I think this piece of advice struck a chord with me specifically because I have so many interests and I think I've tried a lot of things and it's it's taken time to really find my fit in the world. Like it was this, it wasn't this straight line path into venture. It, it was fairly zigzag and it took me time to really know myself well enough to be able to start conscience. So that piece of advice is strategy is what you don't do really stuck with me and really resonated with me. But I, I don't know if that advice is particularly, that piece of advice is, is helpful for just anyone, but it, it just, it just really worked well for my my personality type, just always remembering that and and what I do. I love that. Ariana, thank you so much for your time. This was so much fun to chat. Yeah, so much fun. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate it. And there you have it. It was a pleasure chatting with Ariana. I highly recommend following her on LinkedIn at Ariana Thacker. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd love it if you'd write a review on the Apple Podcasts. You're also welcome to follow me, your host, Mike, on Twitter at Mike Gelb and also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. Thanks for listening, everyone.